So as most of you know that have been journeying with us, we have been working through the first letter that Paul writes to the church in Corinth. And it's been incredible as we've discussed and as we've shared these themes that are shared by Paul to this church, a church which is multicultural, that finds him in this metropolis of Corinth. Um, and there's a lot of things that are going wrong, and he writes this letter to them. And he shares quite a straight to the point on some of the things that are getting horribly wrong, and he addresses these things, but in the same space, he urges them to be what they actually are. And Piet was just so amazing last week as he tackled those tough, tough chapters, chapter 5 and chapter 6, and he shared this theme that we are called to be spiritually wise and mature believers, and he used this beautiful reality that Paul writes about where he says that we've got to have the Word of God in our hearts. And we need to have the gospel on our lips. And then, we will sh- and then Paul writes of how Jesus then comes and transforms us. How Jesus draws us and how Jesus claims us. And it's just, as I was hearing the word, I was like, oh, the Lord, you're so good. Because it dovetails into what I'm going to be sharing. Kind of a little, fact, a little fun fact is um, the, the elders' uh, retreat for the, the partial couples uh, in, in England that Pitt and Jen were are currently at uh, this weekend. Um, we had it wrong. So I was going to preach last week. So I've been preparing weeks in advance for that. And then we realized, okay, we had to swap it. And then this is how the Lord works, because it was such a good message. And if you haven't heard it, please go and listen to it on the podcast. And some of the other themes we've shared. And so just his faithfulness in, in preparing this and putting this in the right place is just so good. So as I said, this theme that I'm going to be sharing about is actually... You, you read about it in three different places in the, over these chapters. It's in, it's in chapter 1, it's in chapter 3, and it's in chapter 5. So Paul, as he's sharing about these, these themes of what he's calling this church to be, he shares this important truth, and he repeats it, and he repeats it. So you're all wondering what this theme is. Well, the theme is, it's going to be on the screen, the day of the Lord. Now, when I say the day of the Lord... I know many of you kind of have a preconceived idea. You've, if you're from a, a religious or a church background, you've all had to some part, you know, thoughts and minds where you've got a theory of what you think is going to happen. And words like Armageddon, words like that Jesus is coming on a white horse, the words like that there's certain prophetic things that are taking place, that are going to take place. Words like that you, you, you know of the fact that, um, that Jesus says that no man knows the hour of the day except the Father. These thoughts are most probably shaping the way you, when this word comes up, you'd be wondering, what is, I've got an idea of what this is all about. And if you've never been in a church environment, and you're visiting, or some of us that have really not come from a church environment, and this is your church, you, you might have some other ideas of uh, having what some um, kind of a, a, like a big end, end, end game kind of scenario. You've maybe played a PS5 game where you've, you've seen and, and enjoyed seeing what an apocalyptic kind of scenario would be, or you've... Um, seen some kind of movies, so your frame is very different to many other people that have been here, but the main thing is that all of us here, all of us really want to know how this all plays out. 
And here's the, th- the real truth of what today's message is about. I, I really ask God, I don't want that to be what it's about today. And it's very rare that when someone speaks about this theme specifically, that the end and the focus draws us to worship God and to see God for who He is, understand His character a little bit more. And it draws us to just worship Him because we have a deep sense of what He's really doing. And it just wants us to show our thanksgiving and our gratitude, like we did this morning in worship, in a similar way. Because we realize how He's been working and how the day of the Lord has been part of His plan. And we're part of that. And that's my prayer this morning. And I'm excited about that. And, um, and, and really just hoping that, uh, that you will be excited at the end. And we'll come to that place where we just, again, walk away from you. And there's going to be things that God shares that you will hold on to forever. And I'm trusting for that. As we were praying before the service, um, we're trusting for that. So I thought to start off with, I'd read two of the three passages. And as I said, the one is found in the first First chapter, it's in chapter 1, and it's verses 7 and 8. And let's, let me read this for you. He says, Therefore, do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He will also keep you firm to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then again in chapter 3, he says, Their work will be shown for what it is. Because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. These two verses, there's a declaration of a day that is to come. But there are so many other things that Paul is writing about us. He's saying things that we should know, that we will be blameless, that he will prepare us. But there are things that are going to take place. We are going to be refined. There will be a judgment. There will be him taking away all that is we pretend to be, and the true us will be revealed when we see Jesus when he comes again. The key question, of course, is what is the day of the Lord? And... Uh, To understand what the day of the Lord is, you need to understand that God's story of the day of the Lord is woven in this book, from the beginning all the way through to the end. And there's two key facts that we need to hold on to. You need to know this, you need to accept this, and this is the reality of this incredible theme. And that is this, that one is, as I said, the day of the Lord is revealed to us in the Torah, in the Old Testament, and in the New Testament. It's woven within the story that God has given us. And the second thing is that it is completely tied up with the nation of Israel. The day of the Lord is, is woven into the nation of Israel. It is important for us to know that. It's important for us to, to, to accept that reality. And so what I thought I'd do, and um, I know it's an ambitious thing to do, But I can tell you I have been practicing. I want to share briefly how the story of the day of the Lord is woven through this Bible. And of course, to do that, I've had to practice because I don't want to go down some rabbit holes or that get me all excited. So um, if you get a bit nervous, then just 
signal to me and I'll get back on track, but I've really been working on that. So I think I'm there. Um, and the important thing is I'm going to be sharing some scriptures, but I won't be able to actually read all the scriptures because there's quite a few. I will be pointing out some of them in the passages that I'm going to be sharing. And I really encourage you to go and listen to the podcast afterwards, look up the scriptures. There is incredible things that God says to us as we allow the scripture just to take hold of our hearts. So that's really what I intend to do. And um, the way you can start this is really just from the beginning. The first book in the Bible, in Genesis, the story starts there. And uh, we read in Genesis chapter 1, in verse 28, we read that God blesses them and said to them, this is Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, and he says, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. That's where it starts. And then he gives them a command, one clear command. And that's found in Genesis chapter 2, 16 and 17. And he commands them that surely they can eat of every tree in the garden. And in verse 17, I want you to hear this because this is God just clearly outlining it to them. He says, but the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not. For in the day that you eat of it, his words are, you shall surely die. Can't be clearer. But then the humans are tempted by this mysterious creature created by God in the form of a snake who tempts them. And I want you to hear how they are tempted. First of all, he, 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 he sows the doubt and he challenges. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, he says to the woman, You shall not eat any tree in the garden. Did, and he says this first. I thought I messed it up. He says this. Did God actually say? Questions them. I want you to remember that as we kind of continue with the different parts of this, this message. Did God, does God really say that? And then he makes the statement. Did God really say that you shall eat, not eat of any tree in the garden? I want you to just remember that. Did God really say? Apply to the things that we're going to be dealing with as I share this message. And then the lie in verse 4. The lie is clear, the lie is bold, and it's a lie. It's a deception. Because he says, For you will surely, you will certain you will not certainly die. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Take you back to verse 3, verse 1. Uh, um, Genesis 2 verse 17 God says for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die and what happens they take up the offer they accept the offer and the story is from there onwards 
of a broken relationship, repeated over and over and over again. Relationship of violence, relationship of leads to death. Wanting to define what is good and what is evil, we hear that from the start of Cain and Abel, and it just repeats over and over again. As they define what is good and evil, they use the power of death to try and enforce it. And the story in the Bible goes on to say that this gets so bad that they rebel against God. And God is, is, is so upset about this that he decides, and he's just grieved about it, that he decides to destroy the whole of all of mankind through a flood. And he only leaves one family, which is Noah and his family. And he does that. But then they rep, you know, repopulate the earth, and the pattern is continued. And this continues in the story um, to a specific moment and a specific conflict that happens where in a specific city, they all come together with one common purpose. And that's the city of Babylon called Babel in Hebrew with one purpose and one purpose only. And that is to build a temple so that they can be <clears throat> elevating themselves to the place of God. You can see the theme that's been repeated over and over again. And God sees exactly the destruction of this and what, what it will do. And if I think of our lives today, um, I wrote this down. God knows the devastation that this could be. Cultures redefining what is good and evil if, as if they were God. Thinking of so many moments that in our own lives that we're seeing this happening around us. And so God decides to confuse them by confusing their language. And they are scattered across the earth. That's what we read. And then, of course, <clears throat> this Babylon becomes like an icon of this rebellion of humanity, this corporate rebellion against God. It kind of represents this, this, this theme, this iconic theme of humanity when they just together decide to rebel against God. And uh, the story then goes on to a specific man where God decides and calls a man all the way from other side Iran, and by the name of, eventually his name is Abraham, and he makes him a promise when he's out there in the wilderness, and that's found in, 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 in Genesis as well, uh, Genesis 12 verses 1 and 3, and he makes this declaration to him there. He says, I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless all the peoples on earth will be a blessing, will be blessed through you. So he makes this, this incredible declaration to Abraham then, and he's then, there's a story, this is a beautiful story, and it's, you, I'm not going to go into it, you know about Sodom and Gomorrah, you know about what happens with Lot, and you know what happens to, to Sarah in Egypt, but in this journey, till the age of 100, the blessing hasn't happened. But then from Genesis 15 to Genesis 17, all these promises, these covenants, God starts revealing to this to, uh, through, through Abraham. They, of course, they try and do things on their own, but God reveals himself to him, and he says this amazing thing that's found in Genesis 15. I don't have that specific scripture, but he says, but a son of your own flesh and blood will be your heir. And then he takes him outside, and he says, like the countless stars in the sky, so shall your offspring be. That's a, that's a promise that God makes him. And then he repeats this promise and this covenant through the next few chapters with these incredible things that happen. 
Of course, Isaac is born, and we are, it, it is just an incredible story. And then, of course, God does the most craziest thing of ever, and in our minds, it doesn't make sense. He tells him, I've made this promise with you. I've said that through this son of yours, there will be, he will be the heir, and through him, there will be generations and countless generations. Then he says, I want you to sacrifice your son um, on this mountain. And he obediently goes. And God stays his, his, him from slaying him. And then we read in this incredible chapter from Genesis 22, from verses 15 to 18, where the Lord specifically is, By myself I have sworn and declares the Lord, this is a covenant, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son. And uh, if you go to the next one. And surely I will bless you. This is a promise. And I'll surely I'll multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gates of his enemies. And in the final piece, and if your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. It's very important for us. He makes this promise to Abraham. And this is where the day the Lord starts coming to, to mean something in the story. I needed to give that as the kind of the backdrop. We know that from that moment onwards, through Isaac, he has two sons, Jacob, through the line of the 12 sons. Again, the same iconic reality of rebellion starts creeping up, defining what is right and what is wrong, the jealousy, the hatred, almost the death of one of the sons. And this continues to the next key moment where Egypt becomes a bigger and badder Babylon. You have the Pharaoh at that stage who, who, who's, who's felt threatened by this nation of Israel who are his immigrants. Um, he decides to kill all the boys, enslave all the rest because he's threatened and he wants to define what he believes is right and wrong. And he does it by the power of death. And what does God do? He lets through his pride, he gets, he gets completely destroyed. And he rescues the nation of Israel. And they start singing a song from that day onwards. And it's called The Day. They sing a song that they compose every year. And they sing from Psalms 113 to 118, where they declare that the, the, the Messiah, the King, the, the warrior God is rescuing them. And they call the day the Passover because they were passed over by death. When the angel of death came past with the blood that was on the lintel and on the two doorposts, that sacrificial lamb's blood, they were passed over. And so the day is the first time that this day of God that's the rescuer, that is the Messiah King, is something that they hold on to. But here's the thing. The nation of Israel moves out of Egypt and you just see the repeat of the same iconic Babylonian style of resolving conflict and defining what is right and what is wrong. And it just leads further and further into wickedness and brokenness. God calls judges into their lives. These are men that come along and, and lead them back all the time. You see this example of the Lord just continually as they stray away, just calling them back, sending someone to, to rescue them and bring them back. These are the judges. They then call for a king. They ask for a king because the other kingdoms have kings. God says, all right, you can have a king. He allows them to have a king. Most of the kings are evil. There's only one that really stands out, heads and foots, and on a pillar higher than anyone else is David. He loves God. He wants to dwell with the Lord. He wants the Lord to dwell with him. 
He wants to replace the tabernacle, which is a tent, with a temple. He doesn't get to see that in his life, but his son builds that. But all the kings that follow just follow the same pattern of just defining what is right and wrong and just completely using the power of death to achieve it. And it gets to the stage where the kingdom is split from the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And then there's a shepherd in the hills who's a prophet. And his name is Amos. And Amos is given the, the task to declare something to, the, to, to all of Israel, which that there is another day coming. There is a new day of the Lord that's coming. And against the enemies, he will do something mightily. And the enemy is Israel. They didn't want to hear that. Let's read that in Amos chapter 8, verses 1 and 2. Um, and I'm just going to read it from here. And what do you see, Amos? He asked, a basket of ripe fruit. I will answer. Then the Lord said to me, the time is ripe for my people Israel. I will spare them no longer. And then he goes on in verse 2 to declare what will happen to them. Declares the sovereign Lord. The songs in the temple will turn to wailing. Many, many bodies flung everywhere. Silence. The day which was representing something for the warrior king to come and rescue them. Amos declares that they will become the enemy. They will be the ones that will be flung to the ground. And of course, the corruption and the violence that follows even after the prophetic statement discontinues. Other prophets come and proclaim the same thing with Isaiah, and then it happens. The Babylonian kingdom comes in and destroys the temple and takes all of the Israelis into captivity, into Babylon, and assimilates them into their culture, strategically wanting them to, to kind of change and become part of their culture. But what do the Israelis do? They continue to celebrate as if the day that is coming through the Passover where the Lord will rescue them. They do that yearly. They long for that. And then something most amazing happens. Absolutely kind of bonkers in a way. The prince of Persia, the king of Persia, wipes out and takes over the whole kingdom. And he declares something most bizarre. He says the whole of Israel can come back into the Holy Land and he will pay for building the temple again. And it's the same temple that Jesus comes to when he comes after a few other empires of oppression have taken over the nation of Israel. But in that time, the corruption, the violence has just continued. And Jesus comes into the picture when Rome is the oppressive empire. And now you must imagine in the heart of, of all those Israelis that have been living under this for all these years. They see the miracles. They see the declarations that Jesus makes. And you can understand in their hearts that they think this is our warrior king. This is the king of the Jews. This is the one who's going to clear, kind of free us from the oppression that we've suffered over all these generations. Even one of the disciples kind of orchestrates that to kind of force Jesus to do that through Judas. But what does Jesus do? He does something completely, completely opposite. Uh, just catch up to my notes. Um, Jesus saw the real enemy. It's not the oppressive empire. It's that mysterious being 
that he's created. And we see then in the book of Matthew, as he's tempted in the desert, it says that he was tempted by the temper. And then he answers every, over the 40 days, he answers and declares the word of God against all the temptation that he's experienced. And on the last temptation, he names the tempter from Genesis 1 and gives him the name. See that in Matthew chapter 4, verse 10, and he says this clearly. He says, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. You need to understand, Satan wanted Jesus to use his, um, his own power to express it in his life in, and just not use, he, he wanted him to, to kind of use the, the authority that he had. In everything there, he was just trying to get Jesus to kind of follow the same pattern of what it was been doing. Where they were using power to oppress, power to define. And Jesus resists every temptation. And um, you can understand that this, this conflict is, is an age-old conflict. And I thought the most amazing place where this conflict is kind of summarized, and you see it, if you can just read it with this lens, is when Jesus is approaching Jerusalem. So the way he answers this, and you must understand, he declares this to all the Israelis, to the disciples, as he was approaching Jerusalem. But he's not just declaring it to them. He's declaring it to all principalities and all spiritual realities as he makes this proclamation as he approaches Jerusalem. It's found in Matthew um, in chapters uh, 16, verses 21 to 23. Um, And just hear this. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed on the day and be raised to life. And then Peter takes him aside and begins to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he shall never happen to you. And then Jesus turns to him and says, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but, barely, but, mere, but merely human concerns. Friends, if you read it, and as I did for many years in the past, I'd read it quite a few years ago, but I read it always just as a like, okay, that's weird. How could, how could Peter say that? But actually, this is, a, this is a spiritual battle going on. Satan is seeing, he's made this declaration as he's approaching Jerusalem. That he's going to have the one final battle with evil. And he's not going to battle them as the world wants it to be. As, 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 the, as the evil one has defined it over all these generations. He's going to battle them through dying on the cross. He did not want Jesus to die. And that's what he declares. And so I wrote this. And I, and I really just want to. This is just, if there's one thing you've got to hear. There's a few things. But this is one of them. Made it all in bold. I've even made it yellow. Um, And so I hope you guys get this. Jesus was going to let evil exhaust all that it is by using its only real weapon, which is death. Let me repeat that. Jesus was going to let evil exhaust all that it is by using the only real weapon that it had, and that is death. And when was that going to take place? On the day of Passover. On the day... 
that the whole of the Israeli nation was longing for a king to come and rescue them. They call it the day. They sing about the day in the Psalms, in the final part of the Passover. This is such an amazing truth, friends, that God would overpower death by expressing his love to us as that Passover lamb. When you just spend time meditating on that alone, exhausting death, exhausting evil, letting death do everything it can to him. You could live in this passage. And it's linked to this concept of the day when God rescues them. And that's still in the Old Testament. And God is faithful with his promises. He's promised that and he's made, he just wouldn't let go. And he just keeps drawing them back. He's finding a way. And then something most amazing happens on that specific day. Through that cross, through that death and resurrection, this is the most amazing thing that happens for me. It's something so big that's just changed. Because, because of the death of Jesus, he opened a new way for us no longer to be caught and trapped by the icon of the, of the pattern of Babylon. He's made a way for each of us here to not be caught up in the deception of having to define what is good and evil and then to use power to make that happen. He's made the way that we can see that it's a different way. And once you know that and own that, that is what Paul is writing to this church. They're getting it wrong. And he's saying, do you know who you are? Remember the day of the Lord because you have everything you need. You have every spiritual gift. You know who you are. Don't do that. Don't do what those guys are doing. Do you know who you are? And then he starts teaching us, teaching them and us of what it means to walk in this way. And, and that's what the church is about. But I, I want to say this because it, it really is true. It's not an easy thing because I've written it here. But the, 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 the re reality is that the, the world is still full of evil. And Constantly, new versions of this Babylon is thrown in our faces. When I was preparing over these weeks, I was just so amazed, and as God just revealed to me, how many times in one week I'm faced with the media telling me what is right and what is wrong, what is good and what is evil, what is allowed to use power and death to achieve that, friends saying it, nations saying that, work colleagues saying that, leaders that I, I follow at work telling me, this is what our values are. This is what you need to. This is what, what is right and what is wrong. So many moments in my life that I realize I'm confronted with this Babylon. And I've got to say to myself, but there's another way. There's Jesus' way. And I can honestly say, so often it is hard to just say no. But I can I just know that there's no way we can do this without the power of the Holy Spirit without allowing, as Piet shared and as we've been sharing over these last weeks out of Corinthians, that God is calling us to a different role. He wants to have this word in our hearts that when we hear that, we can say, that's not right. I believe what God has said. When God says that I've created man and woman in my own image, we mustn't hear what the world says to us. Did God really say that? 
Did God really say? Jesus said it in Matthew that marriage is for a man and a woman to become one flesh. What you're hearing in the media and in everything else is that God really say that. There's so many moments in my life and in your life, you've got to know this, that this, this, this icon of Babylon is real. It's in front of us, but we're called to be different. We're not of this world. And I really want to encourage you that it is not easy, but the hope is that we are different and we are called to be different. And that is why Paul says, I want you to remember the day of the Lord. I want you to be prepared for it. And that's what I really want to get to now, because Paul then says, we need to be ready for this day. So yes, I've got to just point us towards that. And there are certain things that we need to know about this. We find this, I find this so refreshing. We sang about this. I didn't know this, and I just love this about God. Um, Revelations 5, verses um, 12. <clears throat> and if you've got that for me, Renus. This is when all of creation is crying out, and they, they're proclaiming who will be their rescuer. It's what we were just singing together, and the, they all cry out and they say, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. They are declaring it, and we declared it this morning. But it's something different to what people would expect this this warrior God, at the final day when he comes, he's a lamb, a sacrificial lamb. And then when he comes, it's also not quite what we expect. We know we've heard this thing about him on a white horse, and he's got a sword. But just, just hear what the scripture says. This is found in, in Revelations 19 from verse 11 to verse 16. <clears throat> it starts by saying the sky will crack open, and then he will arrive on a white horse. And in verse 13, I love this. He is clothed in the robe, dipped in blood, and the name by which he's called is the Word of God. So friends, he's arriving to the battle, but he's, he's already bloodied. And the, the next thing that we hear is that he has a sword, but it's not like we think he's got a sword in his hand. The sword is in his mouth. It's found in verse 15, and it's written, it says, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he will tread and the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. I love verse 16. I'm just going to say it because we sing it. It says, and his robe and on his thigh, he has his name written. And the name is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And I almost want to start singing that song. It's so cool. Um, but I want to just kind of bring us back. This is, this is what we're waiting for. And, and, and all the commentaries kind of all agree on this. It's, it's, it symbolizes two things. The blood symbolizes not our blood. It's his blood that was shed for us on that cross. And the sword in the mouth symbolizes that he is going to have the authority to define what is good and what is evil. And he will judge us across all the nations. And here's the thing for me, and it really does rock me when I realize this. Because it says here, then I know this, on the day of the Lord, for me personally, I know that we will all face God. And it says that we're going to be refined. He's going to show us for who we are. And he's going to expose who I really am. Yes. But being a child of God, that means there'll be pure gold. Might just be a little, but there's going to be pure gold left when we stand before him. 
But, but this same thought kind of hits me so in the chest when I'm, there's people I love, there's people I journey with that have openly confessed how they've rejected Jesus to be who he is. They continue to do that. And, and when I'm standing in front of them and they give me an argument which is kind of so intellectually, you know, did you really believe that? And can you really believe that? And if you consider this and, you know, who wrote the Bible and, you know, people put it, to, you know, all these, these things that they would, would, would throw in one's face. I'm sitting there thinking, Lord, I know that this person I love that every knee is going to bow, that this person's knees are going to bow before you, and they're going to declare that Jesus is Lord. But your wrath, when you come, will be on them. And they will, be, they will experience the wrath of God. And that gives me courage, friends, and it should give each of us courage, that when you're with those people, and when you're with those people that have really hurt you and continue to, to let you know that you're just so ancient of days, it should give you courage to know, there's still time. Maybe if I just show a little bit more love to this person, a little bit of what Jesus would have done, maybe there's a, there's a chance that he just, his heart would just open a little. And, and that's the hope that we have, that there is still a little bit of time. Um, I've summarized this by, by really just saying that the day of the Lord to us is an invitation to resist the culture of Babylon. It's to resist the culture when people are telling you that God really say that. It's to resist the temptation to try to define what you believe is right and wrong and not use this word as your guideline. I, uh, some of you are thinking, well, Ken, you must have forgotten about the nation of Israel because you kind of went off and told us about the end in Revelations. And... I'm sure you don't realize it, but I actually left that for last because this is an amazing story. And so in the last part of my message, I want to take us a little bit back to where Jesus has now, just picture this, some of you have been to Israel, I know a few of you have, Jesus was declaring that he was going to Jerusalem and he was going to face persecution and he was going to die. This is shortly before he's going to be crucified. And then we read in Matthew, as he approaches Jerusalem, and if you've ever been there, it's an incredible picture. You kind of come up from, from Judah and from, from like Jericho and up across the mountains, and then you look out and you actually see Jerusalem below, below you. You see the wall, you see where the temple used to be, and I have this picture. It's also from, from the, where, the Mount of Olive side, but it's a little bit further back, <clears throat> Bethany. Um, you, you can see this picture. Jesus, Jesus looks out over Jerusalem and he makes this incredible statement. It's a prophetic statement. And he says this in Matthew chapter 23, verses 37 to 39. He says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that has killed the prophets and stoned those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered you as children together as a hen gathers his brood under his wings. And you were not willing, exclamation mark. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, I will not see you again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In Hebrew, Baruch Haba Abshem Adonai. Friends, what he's saying here to all of, all of the nation of Israel is, I've longed. 
to be like a mother hen and keep you under my wings. That is where protection is. But you keep running away. You keep going and getting hurt. You keep running away, but this is where I've wanted you to be. And you just keep running away, and I've called you back, and I've called you back, but you keep moving out from under my wings. And so you've stoned my prophets. You've killed those that I've sent, and now you're going to kill me. So he makes this prophetic declaration to all of Israel. You will not see me again. This city will be desolate. And you will not see me again until you declare, Baruch Habab Bishem Adonai. And if any of you know your history, you know that by 40 years later, 70 AD, the temple is completely destroyed. Not a stone is left, as the historians say, of the temple. And then by 134 AD, Hadrian, who was then the empire, he completely decimates the Jewish nation. Two-thirds are completely killed. And all that is left, the third that is left, is banished from, from Israel forever. And um, they are scattered throughout all the nations. Um, from that moment onwards, the, the language is not spoken. And here's the thing. The most craziest of craziest of things. The nation that he made a covenant with, almost 1,900 years later, in 1948, this nation is born again. In the midst of their enemies, the language is spoken it is the nation that God has made a covenant with all those thousands of years before. It is something so incredibly mind-blowing. And it is just something to wonder. It's something happening in our generation. But if you think that's an incredible thing. A hundred years ago, there were less than a thousand Messianic believing Israelis in the world. About 40 years ago, Something started happening. Jewish believers started declaring, Baruch, Habab, Bishem, Aronai. Today, there's believed to be 350,000 Messianic Israelis, Jews, throughout the world. There's about 20,000 in Israel alone. This is the most incredible thing that you and I need to realize. We are living, there's, there's, there's been generations that have, that have come and gone which have longed for this to take place. But this is prophetically happening while we are alive. There's 14 million of them, and I'm going to read a verse now where the Lord actually declares that I've held back this nation and I've hardened their heart temporarily so that the Gentiles can come in, that's you and me, for a time being, but then all of Israel will be saved. Let me, just, let me just go to that one. It's in Romans chapter 11, verses 25 to 26. Um, I want to just read it. Thanks, Renus. Let you be wise in your own sight. Do not, do not want you to be unaware of the mysteries, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come. And this is why in, in this way, all Israel will be saved. This is a prophetic declaration. There's 14 million Israelis out there. But we are experiencing it in our generation. It is something to really get you to start thinking about. You can just meditate on that only. To know that God is busy doing something while we're alive. And this is all happening before the day of the Lord. 
Friends, we serve a God who is just so faithful. He's declared it to us in this story, and now we are living in it. If we were born 70 years ago, we'd still be in the space of longing for knowing that there will be some remnant of this taking place. But there's these things that we should know and believe. And so I, can, I just wanted to summarize it into these few wonderful points. And I want us then to sing the same song we sang, and I'd love to pray for us. We should know this, friends, that Jesus let evil exhaust everything that it is. Using death, he overcame it by being the Passover lamb. And he created a new way that we no longer are required or bound by the icon, the Babylonian way. You and I don't need to be there anymore. You have a way of addressing the good and evil that you're told that you're living because God is just faithful. He has made a way through the death and the, be- and, and the resurrection so that we can be out of that, that, that pattern. And it is such a beautiful thing. But we have to resist the culture of, of this Babylon because it is all around us all the time. And we are called to let the people know time is actually running out. And it's just... For you to know this, God has spoken to you and he's called you by name before this happens, before the Gentiles' time runs out. I, just, I found myself just sitting in that thought for, for days and just realizing as he loves me to have called me and that the day of the Lord hasn't happened yet. And it gives me that sense of, as I said, of, of excitement, but of just... There's so many people, Lord, that don't know you. And that's what we're called to do. I hope that as you've heard this message, you will think of who God is and how he's revealed himself to us and how he's broken that chain that has been a yoke on so many nations for generations and generations. And we are living, friends, in a very, very, very exciting moment.